Hi, I'm Bella Sanger, enthusiastic eater, exhausted parent, founder, and CEO. In this video podcast, I really wanted to talk with a diversity of badass female entrepreneurs and thought leaders getting into what it means to belong in our professions, in our cultures, and our own bodies. As an Indian-born, Canadian-raised American woman who spent years fighting for a seat at the table, I just decided to build my own. So grab a cup of chai and join me. Welcome to Bella's Table. Good morning, Michelle Lee, Miss Michelle Lee. Welcome to Bella's Table. I'm so excited to have you today. Oh Um, my gosh, thank you. Yes, and so for our audience who who doesn't know Michelle, but I mean, I think a lot of us know Michelle now. Michelle is an advocate. She's a journalist. Um, she is a Korean American. She's a mom. If you follow her Instagram feed, you're going to see her and her adorable son. Um, <laughs> and Michelle, I'm so glad you were able to join us. This episode, uh, we're shooting it um, remotely because it's COVID, right? And I think you're at home today. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Of course we've been quiet all morning, but Mm -hmm. now we need to get our wiggles out. And so, um, we've been in a snowstorm for the last three days. So all my equipment is at work in the newsroom. Um, and we've been watching way too much screen time. And, uh, my son has a seat scooter, so he's been scooting around the house, (laughs) which you probably will hear. Uh Um, uh so yeah, it's been just one of those, Another one of those days or one of those weeks for parents. Uh. Yeah, I I can relate. I have two kids under 10 and a COVID puppy. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I get the noise thing. But anyways, despite all of that, thank you for making time. I know you've been really busy these last few weeks. It's really great to connect with you here. Um, So this podcast episode is about motherhood. Right. And the, the our lens on it and all of the intersectional dynamic things and I I have my I've come into my own learning and reevaluating my history as a mom and my journey as being a child of an immigrant also and so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you I find you to be really vulnerable really open and I'm I know our ex- audience is going to super appreciate that so I'm going to start with a question and I know we all hate it but you know <laughs> okay. the audience is going to want to know um, how do you balance it all. How do you balance the career <laughs> and the kids and the scooters and the podcasters who want to interview oh. you and the, the life, all the things with life? What's what, what have you learned? What's your approach? Well, I think we have to be really honest about um, asking for help. You know, like no, mm. no one can really balance. I think that balance is kind of a BS term, you know, because we're not balancing it. We're like powering through the day, hoping that we can get to the end of the day whole, (laughs) you know? So I always really appreciate it when women say like, oh God, I don't have it together at all. Like you should see what's going on at our house. Um, And I don't really balance things. I do try to have a game plan going into each day. So it's like, I knew I was meeting with you. You know, I've got a phone call for work. I'm trying to work on my sweep stories. Olympic starts today. Like all these things that are going on in my life. And I'm just like, okay, let's look at the next hour. So what are we doing in the next hour? (laughs) What do we need to do for lunch? You know, um, and then I am really lucky that I have a great partner. My husband has been really helpful and supportive, but like, I do think that the, if I'm being really honest, the weight of like the like I'm, I would say I'm the CEO of the household in terms of like grocery shopping and like chores and things like that. And that's why none of them are getting done right now. 
<laughs> so, um, you know, but my husband is really great. Like we're both at home right now and he is, you know, hanging out with my son a little bit while, while we're doing this podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's been tough. It's been really tough. And I would not say I'm balancing things really well. I'm just kind of surviving. And uh, the pandemic, especially, I mean, we've been in this for two years. So who's balancing anything? We're, it's like, a, it's a shit show. Like, I mean, like, it's just... It's kind of rough, but um, we're all healthy and we're all still working. So it's like, well, let's just go with it. Because if anyone says that they're powering through and doing like a great job and they're like 100% satisfied with themselves because they're like, you know, hustling, I get it. But I would say no one is giving their best work life self. I don't know. Maybe they are. I don't, I am not. Um, but as a mom, I just, am like, Oh my God. Um, I rely on shipped a lot and Amazon. So that's helpful, but yeah, sorry. That was a long answer. I'm not really bouncing. No. (laughs) Well, Well, I think, I think that's the refreshing thing about it. COVID is forcing us all to kind of take stock and being like, maybe what we thought balance was isn't really what balance should feel like. And yeah. there's a there's a more truthful answer. I got to say, I really appreciate my friends who are, are moms and they post pictures on social media about what really truthful parenting, work-life balance looks like. And when I see a laundry basket in the background and like puppies running around chewing shoes, I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is what this is what it looks like. And I think we've gotten ourselves into this. um, We've got this rope around ourselves with all of the social media being rampant about perfection and, you know, all of the the um, hard things that come with that, especially when you're a woman. Right. And you're trying to look the part, look the role, do the thing and be the perfect mom. I think that's been the hardest thing for me is like being the perfect mom. And there's so much pressure that comes with that. What does that really even mean? Well, I mean, I totally agree with that. Um, My God, my son. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, he's being a fire truck and a dinosaur at the same time. Um, You know, for me, it's like the perfect Instagram post, um, the perfect guide to motherhood. It was really uh, disruptive in my life to go from zero children to one child. And even though I felt like really prepared I was not like, I felt like I kind of got duped into what motherhood was supposed to be. And so, and then right after, I mean, I loved it, but at the same time I was like, wow, this is so much harder than what I realized. And then when I went back to work, I was like, wow, this is so inequitable for so many parents. Um, you know, because you have, you only have a grace period before people go, well, I know you had a baby and stuff, but you need to get here on time, you know, or you need to do this, or you shouldn't call in because, Uh, we really need you here. You know, those were things that were really said to me after like 14 weeks, you know, it was like, okay, or no, not even 14 weeks. I remember it was 40 something days. So, um, so it was like, okay, so that's where people have lost. I've lost my grace period, you know, for being a new mom. Um, and then, you know, a year after my son was born, we were in the pandemic and then it just became even more inequitable for people to try to like balance work and life and all these things. Um, so this perfect, motherhood or perfect fatherhood or perfect parenthood, it just needs to be squashed because no one can live up to those standards. And um, we're all faking it for, for what, for what reason? Like we're just, 
setting up a standard that no one can reach. And then we're not even helping ourselves or helping support other people like us. You know, I, I, I will go to battle for my friends and my family. And then I find that I don't go to battle for myself. So it's like the, the best thing I can do is be authentic in the space that I love the most, which is being a mom and a wife, you know? So it's hard. It's really hard. I, I, I think that we do put way too much pressure on being perfect. And especially people have forgotten that we are in a pandemic. Like it's still really hard. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think the, I think what you said really hit the nail on the head. We don't advocate for ourselves as mothers. And I think that's a part of the, any part of the world you go to, that's a part of the motherhood national, like international anthem. We will go to bat for everybody on our team, but we put ourselves last. And I think for me, that's not a lesson I learned maybe not before last year. And a Mm -hmm. part of it was COVID becoming a forcing function for me saying, you can't do it all. You can try, but you're going to realize there's only few select things you can really focus on and you have to be okay with the other things, you know, melting away because ultimately they don't impact the things that make you feel fulfilled and whole. And uh, tell me a little bit about maybe what that has been like for you. I think it just... For me, the pandemic was, well, I lost my mom during the pandemic, not to COVID, but just, um, she just went in for like a regular surgery and then 30 days later she was gone. And to me, it was like, wow, what, what is life like without the people that you really love and trust the most? Like, what am, what am I doing any of this for? Like, I could say I'm doing it for my own ego, you know, like I'm working to to make myself feel good. And there is some self-worth tied to work for sure. But it's like if I don't have the people that I love and trust the most around me, like what what is it for? So um, it's just – it's, it's really hard to advocate for yourself and self-care, but my gosh, if, if I'm not here for my son, then who, then what good am I? You know, I'm not, we're nothing without our health and, um, and our, our mental health is like really mine at least has gone so downhill, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, and so I just think the pandemic has allowed us to have a new perspective that that made us slow down. Um, and at the same time, just kind of reevaluate our expectations and our standards and what's really important to us. And that's what I'm still kind of dealing with because, you know, now we're in year two of the pandemic and work definitely is ramping up again. You know, people are like getting together and they're doing things, but with a three-year-old, we're not doing anything. We're still kind of, you know, um, stuck at home and trying to make really good decisions based on our, on our family. So, um, it feels, I mean, I've used the word inequitable a lot these last couple of years, but everything still kind of feels inequitable, you know, it just does. Um, and, and plus we're doing so much work in our, in our own spaces, like in our motherhood spaces in like, for me, like being an Asian American woman, you know, like there are things that I'm like in an, an adoptee space and a wife space, you know, all these things, um, have just been really challenging in the last couple of years. And I don't think it's going to change really. <laughs> I think that's fascinating, Michelle. And I, th- I think what we're talking about is self-awareness, right? And for some of us, COVID has really helped um, bring that along, right? And and I'm and in some ways, I'm really grateful for it because I see changes in my community that I think are making us a healthier community. Yeah. Um, but talk to me a little bit about um, 
you know, you mentioned Korean adoptee, right? You mentioned identity and the emotional work and the emotional labor of that as being a part of your life and a beautiful part of your life. And I know your journey through your, your social media. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say, well, there's all these other parts of my life that require my attention and my commitment to develop and to, you know, integrate into myself. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Um, well, I think for me being trying to figure out where I fit, um, really for myself, you know, not for anybody else, but just trying to navigate the world, um, as an adoptee has been a lot of work for myself. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing that stinks in many ways. If you're an adoptee, a transracial adoptee in my age, um, our parents were told, oh, the best thing that you can do for your child is assimilate. Assimilate. I mean, that was an actual word. It wasn't like something like a woke word that people are using. Like people are actually, were told you need to assimilate your child into culture. So that means um, get them basically as white as possible, you know, like go and get them into schools, you know, have them make friends. Um, they don't need to know their culture. And, you know, that's a very different thought now. But we have a bunch of people who are in their 40s, like myself and older, who have no confidence about the way they look um, because the labor to do all that fell solely on them. You know, I mean, the parents, if they had I had great parents who supported me and who let me do things, but they weren't necessarily coming to the dinner table like, hey, Michelle, there's this Korean heritage camp I'd like you to go to. You know, no one was like doing that. Um, they did take me to a couple of adoption events, and then that turned into some Korean heritage camps for me. And as a teenager, I really got involved with the adopt adoption community, the Korean adoption community. And then when I was 18, I started going to Korea um, started volunteering at agencies, you know, I would even like um, escort babies back. What age did you find out you were adopted? Oh, I knew forever. But I, yeah, I mean, that was just part of my like bedtime story routine. So I understood that I was adopted, but I didn't really know what it meant. You know, people used, my parents used the word adopted or we got you or you flew on a plane to come to, to our family, you know, those things. But I still didn't really understand entirely what it meant until probably school age, you know. Um, my mom always said that, like, I had changed, like, my personality or something about me changed when I was in kindergarten because I do remember going to kindergarten for the first day and getting made fun of um, really bad. And so I didn't understand why. For looking unique? Yeah, I got, like, the eye thing, you know, where kids push their eyes back and um, – just got called names and I didn't understand. And also people did like the, the chance, like, what was it like Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at the, or something, you know? And I just remember that because I was like, what does that even mean? Um, so that happened, you know, at five, at five that happened. And, um, so you always, so even though I felt like I had a great childhood for the most part, fit in for the most part, um, I never fully felt accepted. I never fully felt like I belonged. And people would remind me quite frequently in some way or another that I didn't belong, you know? And, um, and that happened. I mean, gosh, that still happens, you know, that's, that's still happening. I that's mean, so look at our community. Yeah. That's, you said so many things that I wanted 
unpack. And a lot of them are resonating with me. Like I have goosebumps. Um, so I always felt a calling to my, to my culture and my heritage because I was actually born on Indian soil, but I left India when I was five. Um, and yet in Canada, I never felt like I belonged either. And I'm, I'm hearing, but I never, even growing up in a very Indian community, I didn't, as an Indian, I didn't feel like I belonged. That wasn't, that wasn't all of me. So this is very interesting to me. You're saying I'm Korean and there was a part of my identity that I needed to explore. Even from an early age, I knew there was something unique and special about me, but it wasn't getting mirrored back to me. Tell me about how you found that thread and how you followed that thread and how that helped you see yourself as a, a fully realized person that you are today. The thing that's um, a little complicated about it is because some of it was um, like happenstance. You know, there was a Korean heritage camp when I was a teenager that I went to. And actually, I was too old to be a, cam- a camper, you know, because um, the campers were like maybe seven to 10 or, you know, or 14 or something or or 12, maybe. I can't remember exactly. All I knew was that I was 14 and I was too old to be a camper. So I was like a junior counselor. But it was um, this idea that I met other Korean adoptees, not just Korean kids or Asian kids, but Korean adoptees who had mostly white parents, um, were mostly in rural settings. And to me, I didn't realize the groundwork that was doing for my life in terms of confidence. And then also just kind of introducing me into Korean culture and, um, and getting me interested in learning about Korean culture itself. But, you know, the hard thing about even that is that, once you're an orphan, you're always an orphan in Korean standards or Korean eyes. So, you know, I learned that at a young age that, okay, Korean people aren't going to accept me either because I had um, Korean people who would say, oh, it's a shame that you're adopted. Your parents must be bad people. Or, um, you know, um, would criticize me for not knowing or like, you know, knowing Korean language or knowing certain things about Korean culture. Um, but that's why I thought it was unfair because I was doing so much work already as a kid on my own. And then even after I met my Korean family, started um, taking Korean language classes. So I took Korean language classes for two years. So I really did a lot of work. Um, but like, you know, I wanted to be friends with the Korean kids at the at the college, at the university I went to. And a lot of them shunned me too, you know, like I wasn't Korean enough. And, um, you know, they said some, some, nasty things too, you know? So it was like, well, who am I? Who, like, who am I? If I'm not Korean and I'm not white, you know, then like, what am I? And so, um, you really have to not only like work on your own self-worth and self-love, but also find a way to build your own community. And I think that's where a lot of people, actually, I think a lot of people from just listening to the feedback from very Asian, a lot of people feel like that, not just transracial adoptees. A lot of people feel like not Asian enough um, to to be a spokesperson or to speak out against API hate or whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, if we all recognize that we all feel that way, or so many of us don't feel that 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 we're very Asian um, on our own, then I think that that makes our collective voices even stronger, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I do know. I do know. Um, 
this resonates with my experience completely. Um, and I'm so sorry that you went through those things as an adoptee. I am, I, no child should have to feel like that with being so young and feeling made to feel, you know, we say kids are cruel, but it's not, it's not kind. And I'm really sorry that you had to experience that. Um, I've had similar experiences, not at the, um, you know, point of being adopted and realizing that journey. But I would say, tell me if you feel similarly, I would say for me, uh, not feeling like I ever really belonged in some ways was a great actualizer for me because I got to a point in my journey as a woman and a professional and a parent where I got to really decide who I wanted to be and set my own parameters and borders. And sharing that now with other women and other BIPOC women, I think is a point of pride for me. Like, you're not necessarily supposed to fit in, honey. Like, you're not going to ever fully fit in. And the beauty of life is you get to define your own purpose and your own mission and carry parts of yourself you know, your traditions, your heritage forward that are meaningful to you. And tell me if that mm-hmm. resonates with you. Oh, that totally reson- resonates with me. Um, I feel like when we, I mean, it's just this idea of whether we want to lead or we want to follow, you know, and I mean, most people want to lead, you know, there are times when I want to follow <laughs> for sure. I, and I do follow. Um, but it's the idea of just who gets to define what's the standard, who gets to define, um, you know, what's the default. Um, so sometimes not fitting in or not feeling like you fit in gives you grit and character and this motivation to do more or to push yourself, um, more. I always feel like you should be in uncomfortable situations because when you are in uncomfortable situations, you are, you know, tasked with thinking differently, you know? Um, so I, I definitely think that my upbringing, albeit, um, was beautiful and tough also offered a lot of opportunities for growth and, and humility. You know, I think when we don't fit in, well, first of all, I would say probably everybody, even the most people, you know, the people in your life who you think fit in probably never felt like they totally fit in either. But um, I just think that not fitting in builds so much character. Um, You know, if you can survive it, really, you know, I mean, some people, it's tough. It's still tough, you know, and I don't want to diminish that. Um, But yeah, I I definitely feel like it it did a lot for me in many ways um, because it pushed me to, to do more. So let's talk about parenthood and <laughs> the the sandwich that exists with having our own children and then having our own parents and all <laughs> of the intersectional uh, stuff that's happening there, the, the beliefs, the things you don't even know you're doing. Talk to me a little bit about how you think about or how you navigated uh, not repeating things that your parents did or you see, you know, other parents doing when um, you think about how you want to bring your son into this world and how you want him to frame his, his future. Tell me about that. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I always feel like that's evolving and I don't have like a a good clear plan. I mean, my parents were always really good. You're not the only one. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) 
I really feel like I never know what I'm doing, even though it's very concerted and I I should know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I always yeah. feel like we're just kind of winging it. I mean, we have our values, right? So that was the that was the great thing about my parents. They had their values, um, and you know, now some of those um, some of the things that they would maybe say today don't necessarily hold true, right? Because we've just changed and evolved. But at the same time, we knew who we were as as a family and as people. And my parents were always really good about letting me lead. And um, like, they respected me as a child, I think, you know? I mean, I, th- th- that doesn't mean that I got away with everything, but they really heard me. My mom would be like, okay, well, why do you feel like that? that? Um, what do you think is the right answer? What do you want to do? Because it was kind of like um, my mom recognized early that if I was determined to do something, I was going to do it. And I actually think that that's not me being special. I think that's everybody. When you're determined to do something, it doesn't matter if you're if you're three, like my son, you know, when he's determined to do something, he's going to do it. So let's lead him and guide him. And then my parents also were really great, especially my mom. Well, and my dad, they were really great about recognizing that they wanted to be different from their parents and that every generation should get better. So, um, I think with them being able to share that with me, about what they wanted to do differently than their parents also makes me recognize it's okay to look at my parents and go, I don't think we're going to go down that road. We're going to go down this road instead. Um, and it, you know, I don't even know really exactly what that is. I just know that um, my parents almost like gave me permission, um, not that they needed to, but just to support the idea of you got to do what's right for your family to make it better for the next generation. And so, um, you know, and, and, and everything's different. So like for my parents, they were always really supportive of me being a Korean born person, you know, but they never really brought those conversations to the dinner table. You know, I mean, they were fierce advocates for me, but they just didn't bring education into the house, you know? And I think with, my husband, we've decided that that's what we want for our son. We want him to be able to feel very confident about who he is as a mixed race child and growing up as a mixed race person. Um, we want him to be confident and strong and, and know who he is. Um, so even though I didn't grow up with Korean culture, um, we already like do language with him and and things like that because we feel like it's important that when he goes out into the world and people, you know, kind of might maybe have expectations of him that he doesn't feel like embarrassed to be, um, to be mixed, you know, like I want him to just be out in the world, out in the world being very, um, confident about himself. Yeah. I think you said some really key things that will probably resonate with a lot of people. One is that as parents, all we can do is just to have a commitment to self-awareness and an understanding moving forward that generally we all are operating on the same value systems. We all really care for our community, for our children, and we want the best for them. And we're trying our best from our vantage point. Yeah. Um, Thanks for saying that, Michelle, in your own way. So we have about 10 minutes left here. And I I have two questions that I I really want to get to. First, um, this very Asian thing, 
Okay. First of all, congratulations. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've been called a, a stinky curry kid or whatever. Oh. And I felt not seen and invisible. And over my life, I just kind of like kept pushing it down further and further and further until I was like so strong lipped about it. I was like, this doesn't impact me. I'm fine. But what I saw happen with Very Asian was um, you started talking about it on social media and the community really came together and you were, I want to say shocked, right? (laughs) At the immediacy of this community rising up because Sadly, you're not the only one that's had these experiences, and it's it's deeply wrong. So tell us oh, a little yeah. bit about that. Well, so that happened, actually, um, over the course of me being in St. Louis for like nine months. But the, the real thing that was interesting, so with the very Asian hashtag, um, was I was working one day at, on the news, um, and I had talked about foods that Americans eat for New Year's Day. And it was like, you know, pork for progress. I mean, it was like, you know, cornbread for coins, green for wealth. And I said, at the very end of the story, I just said, yeah, and I had dumpling soup because that's what a lot of Korean people do. And so people, a couple of people right away were like, oh, thank you for saying that. My wife is um, from Korea and our daughter's making that soup for the first time. And young people see that. That's a great thing that you mentioned. I mean, it was a little story, very little story. And, um, And then about a couple of hours later, a woman called and said, I just want to complain. I'm offended um, because what you said, or what she said, if white people talked about what white people ate, they'd be fired. Um, Michelle is just being very Asian and she needs to keep her Korean to herself. Very Asian. Yeah. And so when I po- I posted that voicemail on, on Twitter and Instagram and it just took off, like a lot of celebrities started tweeting it, um, politicians. And then um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was on Ellen and Ellen gave us this check. Um, Technically, it hasn't come yet, but like (laughs) she gave us a check, um, a cardboard check (laughs) and um, and it had $15,000 on it. So what we decided to do was um, create this foundation because I should say in between the time that I had that phone call and the time I went on Ellen, Um, we had, we started selling shirts for the Asian American Journalists Association just to raise money with the, with the words very Asian. And that was because, I mean, people think it's only for journalists and it's not like AJA will come out against organizations when they use the wrong language. They fight for equitable newsrooms so that, um, newsrooms represent the community. They help train, uh, AAPI and NH journalists so that they have leadership roles because we know representation matters and we all benefit from journalism. So um, so that's how the very Asian movement started. I think what's interesting is it about me. I, I personally believe life happens for you. And as I look at the arc of your journey, as I look at your, you know, from childhood and then all of the intersectional identity things, I think it's so fascinating that you had this link of experiences where you felt um, un- unfairly, um, you know, uh, attacked, right? Um, especially with those shoplifting incidents that you had posted on social media. So you're going into this thing like, man, I feel invisible. I feel not seen. This is not fair. This is not right. And then this moment happens 
and you step into this moment, right? And it was almost like these culmination of events kind of led you up to this opportunity to help other people feel seen and heard. And so congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. You know, I think it is really interesting that you, when you can look back and go, oh, that was a building block and I didn't even realize it. So not just the shoplifting thing, but like just working in like getting DEI training or being on the national DEI board for my corporation, you know, or just things like that where you feel like you're fighting or like advocating for change. And at the same time, you feel confident in your space to be able to post something like a voicemail, you know, that's empowering too. And that's also in a way given to you, you know, I mean, you're seeking it, but also it's given to you because you're, you're around people who, who will support you. And that's really powerful too. Um, because I've, I've only had one Asian American manager in my life, you know, so I have to rely on other people to help, to help support me, you know, and that's important. So I'm going to ask you our last question of our time together. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me, Michelle Lee, when was the first time you actually saw yourself? Oh, my gosh. I have said this. I have said this. I think it was when I was in Seattle. So like 2016, I was in my mid-30s. Um, I really think it was because I saw so many other um, strong Asian American Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian people, um, doing great work. Um, and being in Seattle, I felt like you can be seen or you can be unseen, you know, and in some places you're just totally seen, you know, like, um, you stick out like a sore thumb. I felt like Seattle is just, there was a great, um, there were great conversations around diversity and equity and inclusion. And it was brought in every space. Not, people weren't always getting it right, but I mean, I felt like there were, there was like power in our newsroom, power in my friendship circles. Um, and it just, it felt like, I, I, I have said this literally to people, I felt for the first time really whole when I lived in Seattle. And uh, Seattle is a very special city to me and it always will be. My son was born there, you know? So, um, so I just, it's kind of weird. I think it was just maybe being in such a diverse community and, and knowing that we all had different backgrounds and they were all valued. And, um, and that was something that I hadn't experienced in other places. It was really the city. The city had the good vibes, <laughs> I guess, you I, know. I say the dirt here has special special energy. It has good juju here. Yeah. Yeah, been, I really believe them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Each question we could have honestly talked about for a half hour, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I go long, too, you know, but I just, I, I love talking to you. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, <laughs> I think I think. I'm really excited about this project at Joy Sauce and holding space for these conversations that aren't flashy, but they're they're anchored and they're and they're earthy and it gets to the soul of who we are and what we are and that what you said during the interview I think is really key and I might pull it out as a quote that it's actually just about knowing that we have the same values all of us you know I think we can extrapolate it further like even as a country like if you boil it down we all really just care about parents, our children, and progress and making sure that we feel like we're adding some kind of meaningful contribution to the people around us. 
And that's so relatable. And it's so sad that our differences come layer on top of that and keep us from each other. But thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm Bella Sanger, and this podcast was recorded in partnership with Joy Sauce at Cloud Room Studios in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nick Patrie, video editor, Matt Flunker, and producer, Chelsea Lynn. For more information, head to joysauce.com.